Welcome to the Hear All Voices podcast by Speaky. I'm your host, Scott Lane, and in this podcast, I will bring you a fresh perspective on all things ESG. I'm joined by experts who will provide a clear step-by-step path for companies to integrate ESG at every level and conversations that will challenge you to abandon your current thinking and use the principles of ESG to drive business performance, build value for customers, and protect the community and the planet. Hello, my name is Scott Lane. I'm the CEO of Speaky, and welcome to the Hear All Voices podcast, powered by the team at Speaky. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Henderson, who's one of the consultants at Speaky, who practices in the area of environmental social governance, and has joined me on a number of client projects of late. And so I thought this time, what we might do is a little bit of a fireside chat between Andrew and myself about all things ESG. As we go through client projects, we discover that there is a large amount of issues that people are grappling with when it comes to ESG. So today's the opportunity for both Andrew and I to try and give you perspective we've both shared on some of those key topics. So firstly, before we get started, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate the time today. There are many topics that uh, I think we want to go through in today's session, but uh, it's good to have a chance to record them and get them out to a wider audience. And one of the areas that we've been dealing with lately, and I think you've been dealing with more than anyone, is trying to understand and grapple with this new world of ESG reporting. And as part of our team, you've really been the person that's spearheading this effort and not only getting yourself up to speed, but also for Speaky, but also for our clients. I guess I'm going to start off with your, I guess, impressions of the ESG reporting structures that are in place now and what's coming down the pipe. What are your thoughts? Well, I think certainly earlier this year when uh, the European reporting standard came out, the ESRS, I think that made it very clear in people's minds that uh, the directive from Europe is much different from any of the ESG requirements in the past. And the fact that they had previously been very much voluntary. The Global Rewarding Initiative was the way many people would use, would report out, but it was entirely voluntary. So the move to having to actually give information when maybe that's not necessarily something companies are comfortable with is the biggest challenge. The fact that they have so many data points that they need to gather and and collate is an enormous challenge. So I think that's really more of a structural change that people are dealing with at the moment, going from voluntary reporting where they can just pick out the bits that they're doing well, to more structured reporting where they have to say a complete story within the scope of materiality is causing a lot of concern. I think it's a good thing and it's a good process, even though it will be kind of painful for the next few years for people to go through that. What it's forcing people to do is think about a lot of questions that they maybe had been thinking about internally, uh, but now having to put a lot more structure and, and rigor around the topics that are covered within the the broad ESG world. And I guess there's a lot of arguments at the moment that companies have been involved in greenwashing and other types of somewhat misleading data or grandiose statements that they may have produced. So I'm guessing that some of these reporting obligations are bringing people back to reality and having them really focus on accuracy, completeness of the information. So I'm guessing that's changing people's views as well. Well, I think that certainly greenwashing has been 
I suppose one of the main criticisms of, of most of the ESG communication from companies in the past, and that's being addressed in a number of issues, in a number of ways. So there's the taxonomy legislation in the EU, uh, making people clearer in, on how they describe what they do and their, their product. There's the reporting obligations, and within the reporting obligations, there's also the assurance side. So actual external audit, in the same way that financial reports potentially made to look better than they are. So you need some external assurance to the extent to, that they find things. But that whole process, it's moving much more closer to the financial reporting world than it was in the past, where it was to some extent a marketing-driven exercise. Not to say that there weren't good initiatives and, and the, the CSR type of reports weren't valuable, but they were the company's choice as to what was put in there. Whereas now it has to be According to the standards, you have to report out on certain topics. Things like greenhouse gases, everyone's going to have to report out whether they consider it material or not. So there'll be a lot more information available. That transparency will be important. The ability for everyone to be able to compare between peers to see what people are doing. I think that's what's going to be the big change. Rather than telling the story, they need the numbers, they need the metrics, they need the the policies and the the strategies and all of those things, which actually take a lot of thought that require business executives to be involved. So it's not going to be a marketing exercise in the port. Not, not wanting to be negative about marketing, but it has to be a business exercise now. Because even if you appoint an ESG team and you properly fund the ESG team, they can't actually write a lot of the the, the work that has to go into an ESRS report. Because the business strategy has to come from the business, which is the CEO or the executive team or a board. They're the ones who have to come up with the strategy. The ESG teams, in whatever form they end up in, are the ones who will execute that strategy, but along with the many other parts of the business, but they're not the ones who can come up with that strategy. So, so it's forcing companies at the highest level to, to think about these issues or to make a statement that they don't know. They don't have a policy. They don't have a statement and take their chances in the market. And my observation so far is that most companies are going through that transition that you described, but my observations have been mostly that people seem to be a little unprepared for it and they appear to be, I don't want to use the word lost necessarily, but they definitely seem to be struggling with the realisation that in order to produce the reports, you need data. And in order to get the data, you kind of need to have programs in place. I mean, you need to have initiatives and you need to be developing them and implementing them and measuring them and monitoring them and improving them. And you need to have some clear obligations and goals and need to be tracking against targets. And it seems to me that companies have reached that realization point that in order to establish that data, in order to report out, you need to have programs in place first. And not many companies I've come across have got those programs in place, actually. And if they have, they're typically pretty basic things that don't have a well-thought-out structure and are therefore not generating the kind of data that is really usable in any of these reports. Is that something that you're also seeing? Oh, very much so. I mean, I think people will are focusing very much on the numbers. So where we talk about data points, I'll talk mainly about the ESRS because that's the one that most people are focusing on and I'm based in, in Europe, so well, continental Europe. There are thousands of data points that people need to come up with. 
but those aren't all data. So I think sometimes people think about the numbers and they focus on that. And I've had a lot of conversations recently where people are just focusing on greenhouse gas emission numbers. So how do they find greenhouse gas emissions from their offices, from their travel, from all the things they have to do? And how do I have to collate those up because they need that in the report? And the answer is yes, you do need all that in the report, but that's an output that should be coming through, as you should have just said, the program build. It needs to start at the beginning, like any good story. It needs to start with a strategy. What is the business trying to achieve? Making sure the business and its stakeholders actually agree with that. Making sure everyone's clear what their roles are in getting that information. So the output of the carbon emissions, et cetera, or any other topics, the diversity numbers, the percentage of men and women, and, and, and all of those things that, yes, are needed, outputs, not inputs to the, the system. And the, the data points, as in the, the answers that have to be given to all of the, the questions, most of them are not numbers that you need. Most of them are strategies and policies and objectives and targets. Those are the things that people need to come up with. But I find a lot of times people do dive into the numbers and then they want technology to help with, with the numbers without thinking that actually some of those things that are going to take a lot more time are the strategies, the things at the beginning. Because strategy is not something an ESG team can put together. They have to go through whatever processes the business already has to say, how do you come up with a new strategy? How do you get it approved? Is that from the board? Is it from the executive team? That's what they've got to be working on. Because if they haven't got the strategies in place now, they can't report out in, in a year or two when it, according to the requirements that they're going to have. So that's what they need is to think through the strategies of what's material. So all of this still comes back to the first thing everyone needs to do is work out what's important to them. Uh, materiality assessment is absolutely vital, but it has to be done properly. It has to be done to actually capture the needs of the business and the stakeholders of the business. I've seen a number of cases recently where the stakeholder assessment was done as a very much a, an internal document. So people would write down who they think the stakeholders are, have a rough estimate of what they think they want, and that was it. And that was not really much of a valuable use of anyone's time. Uh, the stakeholder analysis, really talking to your stakeholders, first of all, identifying who they really are. It's key shareholders, key customers, some supply chain, regulators, NGOs in certain areas. But really understanding who's important to your business and the functioning of your business is a huge task. Some people have already done it. I mean, the, the GRI, so world, the, the Global Reporting Initiative had a requirement to go and talk to stakeholders because it was mandatory. It was done as well as badly as, as people needed to do. But I think people who have been reporting under that standard for, for many years is probably in a better position. They just need to tweak it a bit with more of the, the financial and impact views. But I think that initial stakeholder assessment, understanding all the legal obligations, the contractual obligations, the, the voluntary obligations that people have signed up to. That's what they got to be focusing on now, not the, how do we get our carbon emissions numbers? Maybe that can be done in parallel. I'm not saying you don't need them and I'm not saying there's not a lot of work in that, but that shouldn't be the focus of the programs. The program should be starting at the beginning, working out what you need to do. And it seems really simple for most of us, but it, companies seem to really struggle with the size and complexity of the ESG topics. I mean, on the one hand, you're looking at 
perhaps waste management, pollution, and greenhouse gases, right down to the other end, where you're considering issues in the governance category of whistleblowing or transparency and governance and corporate governance and corruption and ethics and integrity and, and frankly, everything in between. And I think companies seem to be getting a little bit overwhelmed with the number of issues and the number of programs that they may or may not have. Some companies will have some of these things already. Some of them may have been done by legal and compliance in the governance space. Some of them may have been done by HR in the social space. Some of them may have been done by in investor relations or perhaps the company secretary. Some may have been done by elements in the CSR world, so in the philanthropy area. And some of them may have been done by engineering in the supply chain or manufacturing. And so what we're finding is that companies are getting a bit overwhelmed and are kind of losing sight of, of that true importance and materiality picture where it really challenges you to sit back and say, what is important to our company and what's important to the planet and what's important to the people who work with our company within the ecosystem that we have, whether it's an investor or someone reviewing our financials, or perhaps it's a customer, a partner, employee, but what's important for them to see and what's our impact on them and what's our impact on the environment that we work in. And thinking through that is definitely a key message for many companies. And what I'm finding at the moment is people are probably overwhelmed, I think, and they're starting to lose sight of what's important to them and probably even more what's material to them. Is that something you're also seeing? Yeah, and I think some of that comes down to what people understand by material. I think materiality assessment is vitally important to get right, but it's got to be seen as a prioritization rather than is this material to the business or, or not, as in is it important that people care about it? Because I think everything within ESG is important at some level. And I, I think no one seems to want to say that, that a particular topic is not important because it is important to someone. The process has to be what's the most important because even the biggest companies don't have the resources to properly manage every one of the topics that could fall under ESG to the same level immediately. Maybe in 20 years' time when these things are, are just built into the fundamental working of a business, we will expect people to look at everything in the same way. But in the next two to three years where everyone's scrambling to get reporting out, I think there still has to be a prioritization. It, it's just the reality that we're in, which means that things that are important to some people might not be seen or documented as vital uh, and material. The challenge is, yeah, I think that's the challenge, isn't it? It's to not only define what's important to you, but then prioritize it and say, well, these are the in this category are the ones that are material to us. And I think the challenge for a lot of companies is there's a nervousness of management or executives to make that determination for fear of the unknown, fear that something will happen on one of those areas that they've said is not material and will end up being material. And so there's a mismatch between what they think and what reality might be. And I think people are a little nervous in drawing that line to try and define what their risk tolerance is and where do they sit on that risk level. 
And I think risk has been one of those roles of the board since the early days of corporate governance and understanding the risk tolerance and setting that risk matrix for the organization and setting materiality is is a is a role that boards have been supposed to be have been taking for some time. But there seems to be at the moment a bit of a disconnect between that risk tolerance piece and the people who are working some of these ESG materiality pieces where the two don't necessarily seem to line up very well. And there seems to be a bit of a mismatch between what people describe as material. Yeah, I suppose that to some extent is also reflected in the the double materiality concept. The investor view of materiality is what probably traditionally the board has considered as, as their domain. They tend to, they're supposed to represent the board. Obviously, there's lots of variation, but sorry, represent the, the shareholders. So that's the external view, at least of current shareholders. And I think that will continue to be important and boards will continue to represent that view. I think they then need to add to that the internal view of what damage will this business do to the world and is it a sustainable business, which is the, I suppose that historically that was the GRI kind of view of of impact to the world. So I think boards will need to reconsider how they see themselves as not just shareholder representatives, but sustainable guardians to some extent. But it, it is a challenge. But I think the way to deal with the challenge is to talk to as many people as you can get their views. I think, yes, absolutely right that if you say something's not material, it could blow up next year. I think there has to be an acceptance of that's the reality. You do a good job in trying to work that out beforehand and you have mechanisms in place to find out problems as they come up and you have a governance structure to allow you to deal with changes. So if something does become more significant, you've got the ability to flex to start dealing with that. So I think. I think that is a challenge, but you're absolutely right. It, a lot of this has to come from the very highest levels of companies. And where where that works, it's great. Everyone's on board. I think I still get the feeling in some of the customers that we work with that boards or management teams have appointed an ESG officer or have appointed someone in whatever role, whether it's cl- compliance or in some cases, financial reporting teams have been given an ESG remit because they were good at reporting. And to go off and do this because they don't quite get the fact that it, it actually comes from them. It comes from the top. The ESG team will execute, but they can't set the strategy. And you're absolutely right. They can't set the risk tolerance for, for a business. So all of those things have to be understood. And I, what I'm seeing at the moment is the different types of people that we are working with inside companies. And obviously, not surprising to most of the audience that both you and I have come to this space from the governance side and somewhat of the social side. And that's been sort of the direction from which we have come from. We're finding, I think now is that there is a little bit of challenge in the ESG space because there isn't a clear definition of the ESG professional. And everyone has come at it from a particular angle that is making a consolidated ESG or sustainability strategy a little bit more complex. And there may not always be someone at the top that really understands the breadth or the spectrum 
across ESG issues and therefore hasn't set that leadership role. And what we're observing is that the members of the ESG team, or who, whether they are full-time or part-time, who have been applied to these issues, are doing a lot of busy activity and are definitely trying to get ahead of things, but are not always doing so according to a clear path and a clear plan. And there seems to be that lack of direction and strategic leadership that I think these programs need in order to align people on the same track and to try and bring together all these elements of ESG. Is that something you're seeing as well on the clients you've been dealing with and this grouping of individuals who may not always be aligned? Uh, Definitely. And I think the reality is that ESG will have to be seen as a business topic. It has to be a business leader, not an ESG leader, no matter what their title ends up being. They have to bring people together across a wide range. Pretty much every role within a business needs to be involved at some point in gathering the information and doing the work needed to report out. I think that's just the reality of the requirements of of the reporting standard, but also, I suppose, the the spirit of the, the directive is to get people all working on these topics. So they do have to be broadly capable. They don't need to be experts. So the leadership of an ESG team doesn't have to be an expert on everything, but they have to be able to bring people with that expertise and get them speaking a common language, I think, is one of the other challenges. I think there hasn't been any need in the past for someone who's very good at understanding carbon emissions, maybe on an engineering level, has had nothing necessarily to do with the HR teams looking at diversity. And sometimes they've actually been on opposite viewpoints on certain topics. So I think that's going to be the challenge is corralling all these people, getting them speaking in the same way, getting them understanding what the what the output needs to be, but also all the steps that are needed to get to those outputs. I think it has to be a, a business leader. And to some extent, it will take time to get people in that role because it hasn't really been a role in the past. Just as it took time for compliance leaders to understand their role, as you and I have both sort of been around for many years, especially in Europe, 10, 15 years ago, there was no compliance role in businesses. Compliance sort of came out of the legal teams generally by a recognition that certain things had to be done in a less transactional way that maybe the lawyers were were good at. And then people kind of felt their way around what their role was and, and we helped train a lot of them, but it took a long time. I think, unfortunately, on the ESG side, there isn't that time. There isn't five years to sort of bed yourself in and, and work out what your role is because it's two or three years to get reporting out. So I think the more people can some get business people who can really start to understand the breadth of what they are taking on or have been assigned, the better, because there is a huge amount to do to get it working. That said, I think the first few years of the reporting will be a little haphazard. I think that's the reality. There's not going to be a perfect DSRS report coming out, even from the biggest company in two years. That's just my personal opinion. Obviously, everyone will put as much effort and time in it as possible, but it's it's like everything. The output might look all right, but the the process to get it will probably be chaotic. But over time, I think the business processes will settle. People will understand that what they want is a program, which is a business program. Uh, It's the... It's that management system view that uh, that's becoming very popular. That's what we need. That's what everyone will need is is management systems to manage all of these topics, and they're just part of the business. They're not something sitting out in an ESG team. They're parts of the business. The ESG team's there to make sure it's ticking over properly, 
pulling out the, the, the content that they need for the various reports that they need. ESRS is just one of them. That's what we need to get to, but that will take a long time. So I think there'll be some corners cut, no doubt, to get to that point. But the longer term will, will have to be business processes embedded in management systems run by people who understand business processes. Otherwise, there'll be a lot of work being done for not a lot of value. And that's the briefly to my next point, which is, I think, two observations. The first is that we're also doing all of this in the context of a fairly rapidly and changing environment, not only from just a business perspective, but also from a macroeconomic perspective and also our supply chains are changing and rapidly diversifying as a result of some of a, of a less globalization push, which is impacting a lot of companies. And so as the kind of ground shifts underneath us, we're also trying to implement these programs in what is a pretty changing environment. And at the same time, there's been new legislation that is being proposed. And also, I want to touch on today to talk a little bit about the due diligence requirements on supply chain. And as many of you may know, the due diligence has been something that companies have been doing for a very long time, and it has ranged. I mean, due diligence in itself is really just conducting research in order to form a view on something, and you do as much research as you need to do in order to form that view, that you're comfortable that the research points you in a particular direction, and you can make a decision based on that. And what we've seen with recent laws in both Europe and now Australia and Canada and Japan and other places, where there's now a government requirement that companies formally conduct more due diligence and that they do so specifically on their supply chain and their value chains and in relation to specific topics, specifically in relation to human rights and environmental issues, which are two of the main elements of the ESG programs. So coupled with everything that we have said and now looking at these new due diligence requirements, which are coming in very quickly around the world. I guess, Andrew, what are your observations on where you see the due diligence piece going and where do you see some of the challenges that companies are going to experience when they're now trying to do all of the things that we've just talked about with a perspective of the changing due diligence requirements? Well, the, the two things are very closely tied. There's a lot of due diligence discussion within the, the ESG reporting standard, the ESRS. There's certainly a recognition that the European Supply Chain Due Diligence Directive is tied very closely to ESG. It's, it's very much everything beyond the business that's in the supply chain has a very direct impact on whether the business can report out correct, accurate or valid, useful numbers. So I think there's no question that people are grappling with the two topics at the same time. I haven't seen necessarily that people have tied it together. What I have seen is that a lot of people who have a due diligence function within a procurement team or, or wherever has ha is looking at the new supply chain due diligence legislation, but not necessarily at the same time as the ESG teams are starting to think about their reporting requirements. And those two things have to go together. In terms of what due diligence is, as again, you and I have been working in this area for many, many years. Due diligence is whatever you need it to be. I think the big difference now is there's just so little data about supply chains out there. The traditional techniques that people would use for due diligence don't work. The external view, I mean, small companies that are in the supply chain 
aren't in the media typically, unless they've done something significantly uh, controversial. So the data is just not there. Some of the traditional methods won't give you much value. So I think the, the reaction has been, oh, well, we'll just stand there around questionnaires and we'll gather the data, which I think is understandable, but I'm not sure it's going to get you much further other than you're just going to flood everyone with questionnaires. You don't have the resources to read the answers to the questionnaires, so you'll automate it and hope for the best. So I think we're still in a very early stage on, on companies working out what actually this supply chain due diligence is all about. Uh, what are the topics they actually care about? How do they actually work out of their thousands to tens to hundreds of thousands of suppliers? How do you separate them out? How do you know what they actually need to answer questions on? Why are you asking questions about topics that are relevant to them? So that process, I think, is still early days. It's something that you and I have done for 10, 15 years, helping customers slice their they're, I suppose, in, traditionally third parties in a, in a broad sense. This is a continuation of that process with a whole lot more topics. Yeah, previously, it might have been a corruption thing, a topic that people were focusing on or a sanctions or a money laundering or, or one of those sort of more downstream topics. This is all the, the supply chain topics. As you mentioned, it's, it's child labor, it's human rights. It, it's a lot of different topics than people necessarily were asking in the past. Uh, but the techniques, I think, will have to change significantly and people will have to understand that because the, the volumes are just so much greater than they, had, they were dealing with in the past. Even more so if you have to dig beyond your first line of suppliers. Uh, that's complicated enough. If, if you actually need information beyond that, as in you have to push down obligations to report data into the supply chain, second, third, fourth level, the complexity goes up extra exponentially because of the, the volumes of, of companies involved. Uh, and also at the same time as the numbers of companies are increasing, the sophistication of those companies to answer those questions is decreasing. So that becomes the challenge. So everyone will need to step back from that approach and take more of a risk approach and say, where do we think the problem's going to be? And let's just focus on that. I don't think there are other options. It certainly does raise a lot of questions for people who are grappling with these two issues and many more at the same time, there's no shortage of challenges to try and manage risk in this changing environment, specifically those risks associated with a very broad topic like environmental and social governance. So with that in mind, Andrew, thank you very much for contributing to today's podcast. Are there any final words of advice for you that you can lead with anyone in the audience to try and help them grapple with some of the issues that we've talked about? Well, I mean, I think the obvious one is you have to start your materiality assessment. That's your number one topic right now, either adjusting what you've done in the past, if you used to use the, the GRI methods or starting from scratch, but do it properly. Take the time, even though you don't have much time, but take the time to do it properly. Because if you get that right, you've actually got the information that you need to move through the process and you need that as soon as you can. Uh, so that's the first thing. Second thing is get your business leaders involved. Don't let them think that it's a, a problem that they can push down the chain. They have to be involved. They're business processes. They run the business. Two pieces of great advice from Andrew. Thank you very much for joining the podcast, Andrew. We appreciate it. For those of you that are listening, the challenges that we've talked about today are really just two of the key things that companies are going to be needing to deal with when it comes to ESG in the next 
two, three, and five, and 10 years. There's absolutely no doubt that the ESG environment will continue to grow. There's no doubt that it will continue to be regulated. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that it is going to continue to be the face of some of business challenges that companies will need to deal with over the next five to 10 years. The hope, of course, is that if we all continue to do this, we can make both our companies more profitable, we can make our employees happier, we can make our supply chain stronger, and ultimately, we can fix some of the inherent issues that are broken in the planet. So thank you for joining me for this edition of the Hear All Voices podcast. My name's Scott Lane, and I look forward to joining you on another edition of the Hear All Voices podcast speaking. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Hear All Voices podcast by Speaky with me, Scott Lane. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, subscribe to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We will be back with a brand new episode in a few weeks. Thank you.